Hey, this is Carl. Are you struggling to replicate the bugs and performance issues customers are reporting? Plug Raygun into your web and mobile applications right now and diagnose problems in minutes rather than hours. Kiss goodbye to having to dig through log files and relying on frustrated users to report issues. Make your software development life so much easier using Raygun's error, crash, and performance monitoring tools. Every software team can create flawless software experiences for their customers with Raygun. Try it free today at raygun.com. The Microsoft Azure Marketplace is the premier destination for developers' software needs, certified and optimized to run on Azure. Here Technologies provides an enterprise-grade SLA-backed location suite consisting of maps and location data for all Azure apps. You can access them via serverless functions, deployable solution for web app backends, and real-time data streams, now accessible within the Azure Marketplace. Simply go to t.her.is slash hereazure to get started. That's t.her.is slash hereazure. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And where are we? We are in a room in the upstairs of the Warsaw Convention Center right. in Warsaw, Poland. It's Developer Days Poland. It is Developer Days Poland. Or they actually Poland. call it .NET Developer Days, because yeah. why would you call it Poland if you're in Poland? That's right. right. .NET Developer Days. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is a boxy room, so you're going to hear some echo, but uh, it's, you know, we're, it's not a fishbowl. No, it's not bad. It's but a good little space. Quiet. They, they, he actually tried to get us, uh, he being Masiej, tried to get us a little space in the expo floor. Nice. So we would have had that live at the conference kind of sound. Yeah. But that's all right. Doesn't always work out. Doesn't always work out. Anyway, roll the crazy music for Better No Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? All right, so this is an article from Engadget. Mm. And this is right up your alley, my friend. Lexus has announced its first autonomous electric vehicle. Nice. But here's the thing. It has drones. It comes with a drone that will carry your luggage from your steps to the car. <laughs> it's not the dumbest thing you've ever heard. But it's a little on the creepy side, too, right? Yeah. I mean, I figured sooner or later we'd have just suitcases that follow you around, right? You don't have to actually wheel them anyway. They just follow behind you. Flying suitcases. Yeah. And then they would put themselves into your, your automated vehicle, too. Yeah. Right? Well, this car kind of looks like a combination between a DeLorean and a Prius. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> the love, the love child really of a Delorean. Does, look, I know, I get that. Yeah, it all, I, with also some little bit of taste of like uh, Minority Report oh, and yeah, iRobot totally. too, right? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, the video is just hilarious. Um, but it's kind of cool, and I guess this is happening this week. They're announcing this at the Tokyo Auto Show, and this is the uh, ten twenty four. So here you go, October twenty fourth, when it happens. But yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes, and you know, if you're interested, if you're interested in that kind of thing, go check it out. Cool. The LF30 electric concept car. It's interesting to see all the car companies making yeah. I think electric cars are just on their mind now. Yep. Well, we'll, we'll thank Tesla for that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Elon. 
Well, who's talking to us today? Uh, knowing we were going to talk about performance today, I grabbed a comment off of show 1615, which is the one we did with Adam Sitnik. Oh, yeah. Uh, which we actually recorded at the Update Conference in Prague. Yep last fall, though we didn't publish it until January of this year. Mm-hmm. But we also, that was a show where we talked about memory management, span of T, all yeah, that good stuff in Dr. Core, and got some great comments off of that show as well, including this one, which is from Marcos Kirshner, who said, I like to think of span of T as a view over some memory, yeah. something like map view of file over creating file mapping but with type safety and all that other good stuff. Yeah. But what really caught my attention was that around the 1920 mark, when Adam talks about some implementation for ref types on the stack and how it would require changing a lot of docs and books and trainings and so forth, which is a huge conversation, yeah. right? We're also seeing this conversation around nullable types and so forth, where it's like, how much behavior do you want to alter with existing code bases being this large? Sure. As Eric Lippert put out an amazing blog post from 2009 entitled, The Stack is an implementation detail. (laughs) We all described how the thing worked internally instead of focusing on what the thing is and the semantics around it. Mm. As a result, I have found that a lot of .NET developers don't understand the difference between copy by value and copy by reference, which is important when we start talking about these kinds of things. All we tech people are probably guilty of this to some extent. It's easy to get sidetracked and start explaining how something was done rather than what was done and the value it provides. I have a really nice metaphor um, for, or analog, I guess, for mm-hmm. value types and reference types, which is files on your desktop. Right. So if you take a, a note, you know, a text file and you write it, and you make a copy of the file, that's a value. Right. But if you make a shortcut, that's a reference. Totally. I remember clearly, a long time ago, Raymond Chen. Oh, who yeah. Is, who's been on the show a bunch of times. And not that long ago, though, he was talking about Windows stuff then. Right, right. Uh, And this is going back when he was very much a C++ conversation rather than a .NET conversation. He blogged about how everybody thinks about garbage collection the wrong way. And there I read the best definition of garbage collection that I've ever come across, which is simulating a computer with an infinite amount of memory. Hmm. The part we tend to think of about reclaiming unused memory or no longer used memory is an implementation detail. Hmm. That the point of garbage collection and that all that mechanism is so that you never think about memory at all. There is an infinite amount of memory. The fact that it reclaims it is secondary to the point. It's kind of like autophagy, if you think about it. <laughs> right. You know, it's recycling body parts. unused body parts. Yes. Yeah. But it is interesting in these conversations around performance and the, and the new tooling that we're doing around that to focus on, we want stuff to go faster, mm. less about necessarily how we do it per right. se. Like that, that, if you don't, don't use these techniques because they're fun, mm. use these techniques because it makes a difference in your software. Amen. So Marcos, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and we read on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and uh, open the pod bay doors, Hal. Nice. Yeah. Sorry, Dave. I'm sorry, Dave. All right. Well, Steve Gordon is here with us. And uh, Steve is a Microsoft MVP, a plural site author, senior developer, and community lead based in Brighton. He works for Magix, developing and supporting their data products built using .NET Core technologies. Steve's passionate about community and all things .NET related, having worked with ASP.NET for over 15 years. 
And he's currently developing cloud-native services using .NET Core, ASP.NET Core, and Docker. And uh, there's some more you can read about him on our website, .netrocks.com. Hi, Steve. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. What do you think of this of this place and this conference? It's good so far. It's big. It's a big it venue. Big. Oh, you're yeah. in the big room, too. I am in the big, scary room. Yeah. yeah. Did you do a session already? No. No, I'm after lunch. Okay. So I Coming can see up. how many people fall asleep in the big, scary room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the keynote room was quite a show. Yeah. A lot of lighting, big settings. So, yeah. It's exciting stuff. But you are talking about performance in C Sharp. Yes. Why do you care about this? Is it something to do with your work? Partly. Partly it's a, a crazy obsession that kicked off about nine months ago where I just um, started hearing all these cool things like span of T and thinking, where, right. can I, where can I use some of this stuff and, mm. and where is this actually applicable to me as a developer? Sure. Um, and so one of the things we're doing at Magix is we're building more and more microservices, uh, more and more containerized applications. Right. And when you start running those things and they're actually doing things at scale, that's when you can start to see benefits if you can reduce your memory usage mm. or you can get them to do more. Um, you, you scale less because you're getting more throughput. So right. that was that was the start of the journey, which was just a few wacky lunchtime prototypes of here's a thing we do already. Right. If I spanify this thing and, you know, stick in a Raples and all the other goodness, what what can I actually achieve? You know, yeah, sure. Do the numbers reflect that this would be worth investing some time in? Now, how yeah. do you benchmark? Like, what are you measuring? Uh, so... Initially, I recommend that people start like profile your app, understand sure. what you're going to target. Mm. Um, a lot of people kind of go in with these like assumptions, and assumptions are really, really dangerous in the high perf yeah. world. Sure. Yeah. This is where clearly this method is slow, so this is where we should optimize. But right. Quite right. often, if you profile it under realistic load conditions, you may find like an entirely different path that's your ninety percent hot path that you you want to start focusing and, in and on. And load conditions being important too yeah. both before and after because i've certainly seen optimizations where single user throughput went up mm. but multi-user input went down yeah there must be a list of just bad practices that people do in code that would you know benefit from just a little bit of refactoring or yeah you know maybe linkifying some things rather than you know multiple nested loops and Things yeah. like that. Sometimes, although you, you'll typically find as you go more towards the high performance world, you get more of those kind of weird nested scenarios because you're 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 working to to optimize that piece of code, right? Okay, not make it readable. So one of the things I talk about is the fact that there's this real trade off between high performance and readability and maintainability. Because sure. I've always looked at Link as a very clear way to make an expression, yeah, but not necessarily a performant way. Or more relevantly, when it has performance problems, they're relatively there's not much you can do. Yeah. You basically right. have to dismantle the the expression, sure, and do it the hard way, yeah, the, or the uh, long uh, way. Ugly Long way. division. Yeah. <laughs> it's the ugly way, right? You know, oh, I have to show the work now. Sorry. Right, right. Yeah. And you write it out. Which brings up an interesting point, which is you know, only do, like you're making code more obscure, yeah. essentially. So don't do it because it's fun. Yeah. So one of the first times we talked to somebody on this show was back in 2004 about performance. And somebody had, um, this guy, Jay Rocks, R-O-X-E, had built String Builder. He worked on System Tech String Builder. And it was just fascinating to me because you don't think of strings as being all a, that... A performance bottleneck. A performance bottleneck because we use them all the time. But when you're concatenating strings, anytime you make a change to a string, it's immutable. So you're making a new copy. 
of that string. There's a lot of memory copying going on. There is a lot. Yeah, I have one of the demos in my session is actually where the scenario is we have a we want to upload a file to S3 storage. We want to give it a name mm-hmm. and we base that name on some properties that are in the object. And the old code was just string building and concatenating that stuff together. Bunk, and when bunk, you bunk, when you benchmark bunk. that, it was about a kilobyte a time. Of, of memory, which doesn't sound huge, but mm. scale it up to 18 million of these things a day and it, it becomes yeah, no, a lot of memory. Costly. Yeah. And yeah. moving down to the span-based approach where you can just create a chunk of memory somewhere on the heap or on the stack if you want to mm. and work with that memory directly to populate it and build up the string in that, that memory region that you've got and then create the final string that you need from it. We got it down to just the overhead of the string itself. Mm. So that you reduced about 800 bytes what, of work there. What kinds of applications require this level of detail of performance? I think it's anything that you you know is going to do a lot of work and you can you can see that you can have a scaling change in in terms of and that's how many of those said things 18 you need to times was that a meaningful number or you just uh, no, that was that's we have services that process 18 million messages off a queue a day and, and and do various things with them and and the thing is it's not just one service now it's there's five or six microservices involved in the same sort of right data and, that you were also get. describing this in bytes was it a memory issue you were looking at more than it was a, a time issue yeah so more what I found for us has been improvements by reducing memory usage mm. because we can potentially reduce like by half, in some cases, the number of instances of that container we'd have to run. Interesting. Um, wow. And in one situation, and this is sort of back of the napkin calculations <laughs> based on multiple prototypes not yet implemented, um, we can we can reduce one of our core services down by that half and potentially save one VM in our container cluster a year. That's significant. And that has a that That's has direct a dollar value as soon as yeah. you talk about cloud. Yeah. yeah. One, le- one fewer VM. Yeah. Yeah, wow. scale, scale that by multiple microservices right. and yeah, yeah. you know get on it people start <laughs> start picking it apart yeah how does one go about picking apart your application and trying to optimize yeah so once you've got your profile and you know where your hot paths are benchmark.net is the tool of choice pretty much in, okay. in our world for for benchmarking i know adam probably would have talked about this as well um you basically bring that into a console application as a library you give it some code that you want to execute and it will give you these measurements of execution time, memory usage in a very scientific way, in a way that you probably couldn't achieve if you just stuck a, a stopwatch around that code. Uh, so it will do warm-up phases on your on your code. It will measure its own overhead and then it will run each benchmark in its own process many tens of thousands of times, many iterations to make sure that the margin of error on the numbers it's giving you, because when you're measuring in nanoseconds, there's lots of things on your machine that are going to affect those numbers so it throws out those outliers and, and gives you gives you your starting point and the, the first thing is really measuring and understanding so the, out, is your the before. output of this tool going to show you that this method that you called took this amount of time and that method took this amount exactly of time. yeah you you give it the code to execute so yeah. most commonly you'll start measuring at the kind of method level to get a feel for that but mm-hmm. at times you may even just take individual lines of that code and try and we create a, a really small case of, like you say, maybe a link expression. So you you define the start and stop. That's points. it. Yeah, you just create a, a method that executes some code and put yeah. a benchmark attribute on that method, and then the tooling will run that for you. Nice. That's uh, great. Give you all of the statistical output. You can sort of you know see the mean time, but also standard deviation wow. of these things, and spit out graphs as well of that data if you need to so it's doing the statistics right for you so you don't have to yeah you don't have to think about all of this stuff too much you have to be able to interpret it 
to some degree, but at least you can see if you're looking at just raw memory allocations, you can get that number pretty pretty easily and consistently. Wow. Well, and, and again, I'm pulling up my web performance experiences. The, they, there's a big difference between every one of these runs is you know used to take 50 milliseconds and now it's taking 30 milliseconds, yeah. as opposed to I have you know an average of 50 milliseconds, but I've got a 4,000 millisecond outlier. Yeah as well as maybe a couple of really fast ones for because everything cached really nicely and they, yeah. they zinged along. But that, that sort of erraticness that creates terrible averages yeah. mm-hmm. where you think everything's performing badly. It's like, no, no, like 99.9% of people are very, very happy. And a point one is really unhappy because it just, you know, yep. it went somewhere. And you've got some kind of gremlin that's causing these really long uh, run times on certain uh, calls. Yeah, if the 95th percentile of your user base is hitting these really horrible latencies, yeah. you, you've got a then you've got everybody reasonably angry. unhappy. Yeah. But if you've got 5%, yeah, you should address it. But it's also like, don't think everybody's suffering. You, I think you're looking for a different kind of bug at that point. It's yeah. like, let's get a profile around that 5% and say, what's distinct about this? Yeah. I remember this turning up on a problem we were working on a client-side app where it turned out it was a particular type of PC in the organization. Yeah that ran wow. this thing badly. And and then we eventually figured out that even though it was a really popular PC, all of the users had figured out that it ran poorly on that PC and wouldn't run it on that PC anymore. Mm-hmm. And nobody had told us. We had no idea. We thought our numbers were great. It was just a tiny percentage of people. And we're like, when we actually get the demographics around what machines were causing that problem, like, uh, that's the most popular machine in the whole organization. Yeah. <laughs> the majority, well, then why aren't more people complaining? It's like, because they've learned. Yeah. Word of mouth has solved this problem. Yeah, has solved <laughs> this problem. And it's like, we should actually fix, like suddenly that priority went through the roof. Yeah. Like you were ignoring it because it was that the fifth percentile, which is just a little group. It's like, oh, well, right. we won't worry about that. It wasn't until you really looked at it and you went, oh, this is actually really serious. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So benchmark.net is, a, is an open source tool, isn't it? Yep. Um, so, and you're picking the method to snap this onto based on profiling. You, yeah. Like literally the studio profiler, or you care about uh, third-party ones? Uh, I've used some of the JetBrains stuff as well. Sure. Um, Visual Studio is great. If you've got Visual Studio and you want to get started there. Visual um, Studio profile is pretty you, good. You may as well start there yeah. and use use what you've already got. But um, you can go into very complex tools like Perfue which is like a really scary world when you right. get in there. The UI is not designed Perf- to make it easy. Perfue Oh, Perfue Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite a complex application, very powerful, very, very detailed in what you can collect, but intimidating for a newcomer if you're, yeah. if you're first time. The JetBrains products make it a lot easier, um, give you the UI that lets you kind of go down the happy path of, I think I've profiled this thing now. Right. Mm. Um, but you I want to profile it. against a realistic load. Yeah. You can sit and run it on your machine and hit a few pages, but you're not really going to get you're anything useful. Anything. Um, mm. If you can profile a production app for a short period of time and get away with that without impacting people. That because would be they have ideal. overhead, these yeah. profilers. That's it, yeah. They, they're going to slow down what's happening on that machine as well. Right. But then, given you found a method that it's not necessarily the slowest method, but it's called often enough that it has serious consequences to overall execution time. Yeah. Mm. Now you roll out the .NET, the benchmark.net, yep. snap that into those me- those methods and start watching yep. your behavior. And see, I guess starting with, you're, in some ways you're profiling that again. It's like, how erratic is this? What do these number spans look yep. like? What mm. is the deviation? And the nice thing with benchmark.net is you can you can do that as a kind of diagnostics process to improve the code, but you can also leave those that benchmark project as part of your your solution, and it sure. can become like a unit test. So right. I know Microsoft have many benchmarks now against the core FX libraries and ASP.NET that are run as part of CI/CD, and you can now 
sort of immediately see if you've got regressions in critical paths or critical areas. Yeah. You know, if String Builder suddenly stops performing as efficiently as it used to, maybe we don't ship that. We, we have to solve that problem. Yeah, yeah, sure. Coming from a different way. Well, and I've often found with these sorts of things, like you're talking about eliminating that VM because you're consuming less memory. It's like you're just not hitting the big garbage collects as often. Yeah. And that was mm. kind of the thing that was sort of mentioned in the comment. You you can kind of assume that, yes, if, you, if you're not worried about performance, the garbage collection will do the right thing. Sure. And you have got essentially infinite memory while you're running it. But while allocation is really cheap, the cost is paid later. It's a bit like technical debt. It, yeah. At some point, something's going to have to pause your application to collect that memory back and reclaim it for you. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that can have a, a big impact on on these sort of high-performance services. So if we can avoid allocating at all, we, we cut that. Yeah. The fastest garbage collection you ever done is the memory you never allocated. Exactly. I like that. But I also think you've got an app here scaled to a point where you have enough containers that you're not halting everyone when one of these containers is going into a GC. Mm. Like, and GCs are still fractions of a second. Yeah, right? quick. I mean, it, it's really rare to find a, 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 a whole second long garbage collection yeah. anymore. But they do block threads while they do it. And in a microservices world with all these containers and things, and you have a lot of cross container calls and, you know, service calls, downstream services, seems like, you know, those would be the major bottlenecks in, in a system like that. Uh, how does one even go about trying to optimize a network call? Yeah. You know, that's, uh, well, that, the, the the best option is to try and avoid it entirely. And try and avoid um, it entirely, yeah. a, a lot of people are still building applications that are very coupled. They've got microservices, but then they're recoupling things over network connections, which are going to be slower than the in-process connections they had previously. Right. So, caching um, certainly. Exactly. Yeah. So cache where you can move to asynchronous things like queues is yeah. a big thing. And as our team builds out more services, we're finding more and more things that we can we can just return it. Yeah, we've got that. We'll deal with it. Yeah. And yeah. and push that off to a background service that's that can take as long as it wants. It can crash and it can just pick up the queue later on. Right. Yeah. No one's affected. Yeah. In my experience, when you went to the queuing model, which obviously created some complexity, right? Now you yeah. need a different back channel for setting detailed responses and failures and things like that. The per the single user performance actually went down, but the multi-user performance stayed good. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't rot as the number of users went up. Yeah. Right. And that that to me I thought was a very hard point to learn because it was super easy to test on single user and so you hated all this stuff yeah because it seemed slow it seemed heavy Mm -hmm. and then as soon as you were running realistic load tests and thousands of users millions of transactions a day yeah those systems just don't seem to decay like they or they when they do fall off they fall off very apparently and it's like we need another instance here yeah and that just, problem goes away you can, and you can deal with that with auto scaling rules and things yeah. as well and you can preempt some of this stuff. this is where that knob on the cloud actually works yeah slide the slider and yeah <laughs> the club the cloud knob the cloud knob <laughs> turn it to 11 <laughs> my cloud goes to 11 uh somebody's gonna make a product yeah, I know, like, I know. Okay. I'll just do you remember eleven? Yeah, no, no, the the cloud and uh, accelerator. Cloud. You're right. Knob, you know, like a real knob. <laughs> a big knob. Do you remember the DVD rewinder? Yes, the best. <laughs> I, I tweeted that out just the other day. There was this company that made this thing called a DVD rewinder. You put your DVD, in, <laughs> you make it spin, and the light goes off. It's ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was a little random. Uh, no. 
Yeah, and I think we're, we're, I mean, we're, we're laughing around a point here, which was how often have we been told we don't need to do performance tuning mm. anymore because you've got the cloud, just throw more cloud at it. Yeah. A lot mm. of people tend to default to we'll just scale up yeah. solution mm. uh, or scale up or like the scale out, one of, one of those two. Um, and that's where I think bringing it back to kind of the financial numbers for people. Um, yeah. you know, I, I did those prototypes sort of just as a kind of cursory I'm curious kind of thing. And then when I had those numbers, I could have gone to like a project manager and said, Oh, I've, I've shaved off 800 bytes off of these things and they won't care. That's, no, that's that not going to mean anything to them. Yeah. Anything to them and yeah. that's never going to get prioritized. But if I can say we can potentially save $1,700 a year on a VM by making this change. Yeah. And as long as that change is less than a developer's salary to do it. Right. They can, they can sort of say, actually, we can, we can push this in and we can get our, our savings number that we've been targeted or, Right, those yeah. kind of things. Because you you can put a two or three year ROI on that, and that is a dev for a month. Yeah, and it, or you know two devs over a couple of weeks to nail down a f- aspect like that. Dude, are you putting financial parameters around technical debt? Is that what we're talking about? We, here? we may be mm. getting towards that. Yeah, mm. that's really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm almost tempted to get to a place where it's like, what is our cost per transaction? Because we have the numbers. Yeah. Mm. You know, and then and then you start talking in terms of taking twenty percent off of the cost of transaction. Yeah, I want to get back to this idea of taking um, methods that get called a lot or functions or however you want to look at it, just chunks of code that are going to get called a lot in at scale, and they may not have any uh, on the on the cursory look that you may not see anywhere where it needs optimizing, mm. right? Your benchmark.net is returning a very low number, but still you know that it's going to be called so much yep. that, you know, instead of using these uh, maybe list of T and uh, some of these other constructs, yep. we can try span of T and moving things down to a lower level and yeah. seeing if we can get the number down. That just seems really cool to me. Mm. Like, uh, you know, the kinds of, the kinds of code that reads really well and writes really well and looks good could turn into some serious bit twiddling. Yeah. Yeah. It, it gets very, very deep very quickly. And I wouldn't say that, you know, the, the 90% of developers should just dive down this path just because it's there. Right. Um, I think, I think everyone should be profiling what they're doing and I think everyone should have some benchmarks around critical areas of their applications. Right. And I also think people should be having a performance discussion at story planning or, you know, discussions with project mm-hmm. managers, because a lot of people sort of say, oh, there's the whole don't early optimize or, you know, don't optimize prematurely. Mm. But sometimes there's a disconnect between the PM assumes it's going to do something, but no one's actually had a conversation. Yeah. And so developers and nobody's, and nobody's build something to a certain level. So I, I recommend that at the story point, you sort of say, well, how performant does this need to be? But give me something in like throughput or yeah. Yeah. something I can measure and I can show that we've delivered. Um, because some sometimes the PMS say, hey, performance doesn't matter, we just need this feature, we just need it quick, get it done. But then that, you say, that well, is does, always a lie, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. If it, you can go back and say, well, if this does one request a minute, is that good enough as yeah. a web server? Probably not. No. Um, and that's taking things to the extreme, but yeah. there's always going to be a number that is acceptable to the business. And, and I think it's smart for us before we start to challenge that lie, performance yeah. doesn't matter. It's like, not true. Yeah. You know it's not true. You're just presuming that whatever I'm adding is going to maintain existing performance. And that's also not true. Yep. Every line of code degrades performance to yep. some degree. 
Yeah. So all of these things come at a cost. Yeah. Yeah. So have those conversations mm. early so that when you're, when you're sort of doing the work, you can see, okay, so we're not delivering on the throughput. Now we can start applying span sure. of T or okay. other optimizations. But that also means you've instrumented say, it. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, our old friend String Builder is probably a really great place to start because mm. it, it's approachable. Like, mm-hmm. you know, span of T, well, memory, maybe yeah. not so much, but uh, certainly String Builder, if you're dealing with a lot of string data, which let's face it, I mean, JSON is strings, yes. right? Hmm. There's a lot of strings in I'd microservices. St- I'd still rather have the benchmark data showing that's the issue and then make your change benchmark after yeah. does the number make a difference. Well, sure. Yeah, during the session, I talk about sort of the measure optimized cycle. And mm-hmm. I haven't come up with a nice acronym or name for this other than MOMO, which doesn't Momo. sound great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you measure, you optimize a small piece of what you think mm-hmm. is going to make a difference. And you have to then measure again to prove that theory and do mom. it line by line. Mom. <laughs> it's mom. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. Where I do you think your code's going today? Measure, optimize, measure. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a real cycle. And, and the thing is knowing when to cut that cycle as well. When, yeah, have, you, yeah. when have you delivered enough yeah. um, that's meeting the, the requirements? The return's going to drop off yeah. over time. Uh, yeah, what's acceptable performance? Yeah, we could so, shave five more bytes, but is that... Yeah, is for, that, for how many hours of work and, yeah. and risk of errors and you, know, and you set a test? I'm just thinking also in terms of CI, CD pipeline, like I may not want to optimize early, but I think I want to instrument early. Yes. That I want to start getting feedback and, and being able to say with the major builds, this is, you know, the time consumption is starting to shift. Mm-hmm. You know, there's another aspect of this, which is we are talking about user behaviors too, that as we build new features in users' focuses may shift and suddenly these features that looked minor become major. Yeah. So it's actually where people are hanging around. And, and pieces that we might have optimized before this version are suddenly less interesting because they're now put all their attention on a different feature in the yeah. app. And now that's the one that we've got. To yeah, me- metrics and monitoring cannot be overlooked in, in sure. terms of the production system. Yeah, but what are the users doing? How long are those things taking to Well, Well, it strikes me there's no downside to them either. It's the actions you take from the, 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 that are the issue. Yeah. I would rather measure early and often and resist acting on it until we have more data. We see something over time and, and yeah. we actually have a sense of what the service levels are like. like yeah. You know, we're we're looking at very granular numbers when you look at something like what you know, uh, Benchmark.net spitting out. Yeah. It's not. I don't think it's a good example of what the user's experience is no. in a lot of respects. It's a little too low level. Yeah. So you've got to sort of get a sense of you know, are users happy? Is this acceptable? And then go after those numbers to say, okay, of this aspect of the app that people are unhappy with, which of these numbers relate? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, correlating that stuff and, and having a, a very wide field of view in terms of what you're looking at is really key. Who's the person for this uh, that takes this responsibility on? I think everyone should take some responsibility sure. for the performance. Um, but the person who organizes someone, that group to really go to a dev and say, I think it's this number and you own that code. Yeah. I think you need um, you do need someone on each product team that understands the bigger picture mm-hmm. um, and is is watching those numbers. You know, some of these dashboards that get built in performance uh, dashboards for sites and things don't ever get looked at. Right, and mm-hmm. and and that's the thing. You've got all this great data and no one's looking at it. And it doesn't mm-hmm. need to necessarily be a human that's no. doing that for you. Now you've got. AI, machine learning sure. that could be But you've got to kick it up data. to someone to take action on But yeah, that. you do need to get the buy-in. It and feels I think, PM level I think the, the, yeah, the product managers have got to say, okay, and this is why it's important for them to kind of put down a number mm-hmm. around their, their requirements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need, we need at least this throughput. Um, right. This is how we're going to tackle that Very problem. Very fair. 
And uh, guys, hold that thought while we take a moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. People are going nuts for my online Blazer workshop. The next one will be Monday, December 16th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern. And if you can't make it and just want to download the materials and the video from the November workshop, you can do that too. In one day, we'll write a complete server-side Blazor PWA app with EF Core, API controllers, components, SignalR, ASP.NET Core identity, JavaScript interop, and user management, all using Visual Studio 2019 Community Edition and .NET Core 3. To sign up or download the materials, just go to blazor.appvnext.com. That's blazor, B-L-A-Z-O-R, dot appvnext, A-P-P-V-N-E-X-T, dot com. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC London will be January 27th through the 31st. Go to ndc-london.com to register. We're going to be recording some episodes there. Come see us in the fishbowl. NDC Security Oslo is January 22nd through the 24th. Early bird discount for NDC Security Oslo is December 2nd. Go to ndc-security.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. All right, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Frankel, and that's Richard Campbell, and that's Steve Gordon. We're talking performance and uh, how to tune your code so that it can perform. I feel like we've only really talked, we've sort of briefly talked about span of T, which we originally talked with Adam mm. a year ago, and certainly there's things there. And of course, the famous string builder, an yeah. easy way to get cycles back by not wasting mutable memory. Mm. What other techniques? Uh, so one of the ones I show off in the session is array pool, um, and it's, it's terribly named. It's a pool of arrays. So yeah, uh, <laughs> you wouldn't guess. I'm pretty sure I heard rape in there somewhere. I was like, well, we're doing what? Array pool? <laughs> array pool, yes. Okay. Let's say that clearly. Array uh, pool. Yes. Yeah, okay. um, so quite often in our code, particularly if you're doing IO and you've got streams, there's a lot of temporary buffers in the mix. So you've got mm -hmm. these arrays that are, are sort of taking data for a short period of time. And mm. array pool is basically just this idea that Microsoft have codified a, a pool that we can go to and say, can I rent an array for a short period of time for this piece of work I need to do? Right. Yes. Rather than allocate new memory. Exactly. Yeah. We've, we've already done this multiple times. So we've, we've got a nice sort of bucket of these available mm. and, and we'll go and go and use these. Interesting. Um, and I think this is one of the relatively straightforward changes to make that isn't like a complex code change. People will be able to yeah. look at this code and say, okay, sure. There, there's a pool of arrays here. They've grabbed an array. Right, they've used yes. it and they've returned it. Yeah. Rather than just declaring an array, yep. you're now asking for an array yep. and, and then using it and then giving it back. Exactly. Lovely. The, the only complexity with it that confuses people initially is you say, I want to rent an array of say a thousand bytes mm -hmm. um, and you get back an array, but it's probably going to be larger than that. Right. Because for an array pool to function, it has to bucket these things into sensible sizes. Sure. Uh, you, yeah, if you had an array pool that could give you any possible size, you've probably just allocated and held onto those arrays forever. Yeah. Right. Um, and you're never going to reuse them. So a thousand bytes may give you 1024 bytes array mm -hmm. or yeah. even 2048. So you have to be ready to deal with that. So the, the one area of code that it does add complexity to is you have to track what you're writing into that right so that when you then iterate over it later you don't go beyond the bounds of what you actually care about in there so that does yeah, add don't use the size of the array as the bound yeah, as the yeah. there may be 24 count. bytes at the end of that that may even contain data right that you don't and she don't want to care about that's just good coding i yeah. mean you know to use the right numbers uh, yeah. yeah as opposed to counting on what you define or thought you were going to define up front it's fair it's not a small sure. thing but if you get it wrong that's a 
bugger to fix. Yeah. Like it, you, it will stump you for a while. Well, especially uh, since it depends on which run, what size you might get. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. you get a thousand, you get a thousand one time and it worked great. Then you got a thousand twenty four another time and it failed weirdly. Yeah. And then it got, you know, a thousand ninety six. <laughs> it's a totally different. Yeah, kind it's of one balance. of those completely non-deterministic bugs yes. that you're going to have in your code. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Good luck trying to Ouch. figure out what just happened there. Exactly. And, the and other I thing would about presume that, when you ask for one of these previously used erase, at least clean them for you. Like, where's the maid? Well, so up until um, <laughs> dot, dot, dot net 2.2 when you returned your array to the pool it wasn't cleared oh. um, there was a flag that you could set to say clear this mm-hmm. but by default the data was still in that array wow and the reason for that was performance because right. clearing an array zeroing an array has a short amount of time right. in Frio they have flipped that behavior um, and I think because a lot of people ran into this where you may have some slightly sensitive data or data that you just don't want someone else grabbing and iterating over right mm. um so by, by default now it clears, clears the array it and, you, and can you can opt out of that behavior not. if you want that's to. does it at least smart. do it on a like a low priority background thread so it's not i'm not sure on that piece yeah, yeah. you can do it asynchronously outside of the process sure. and just not to make it available back into the pool until you're done yeah. so now you're talking milliseconds here yeah but nine right. times out of ten we don't actually want stuff to go that fast we don't want it to block Right. Yeah. Right. Go on with your next thing. Yeah, I just want to keep keep working. Well, let's get back to the reality, which is most of these servers have more CPU cycles than they know what to do with, right? Let's right. See, there are cores out there smoking cigarettes and playing poker. <laughs> They're not doing our freaking work for us. And yeah. anytime we could shove something off to an async thread, it's like, get off your ass and you uh, do this. Outlook, for example. <laughs> <laughs> 65 threads, none one for me. For me. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Outlook hung this morning. What's up with that? Never gets old. <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting to think uh, about how our new coding behaviors are better at utilizing this deeper stack of cores anywhere we yeah. can find places very synchronous. Not that it's guaranteed to be quote unquote multi-threaded, mm-hmm. but it, you're just you're giving room for the OS to make decisions about utilizing more of the hardware. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you schedule this properly you know what's going yeah, on yeah they're um, smarter than we are yeah i know the only thing we can do is put markers around okay this could be done whenever it can be done yeah mm-hmm. you know it is not nobody's waiting on this it just needs to be finished at some point yeah but i appreciate that flip over i would also think if i was writing sensitive code that involved arrays mm-hmm. i would not use a pool yeah like that would be sort of my instinct is like if security is more important i'm willing to take a little more time on it yeah, yeah. And by default, you can work with what they call the shared array pool. So for each generic type, a shared pool that has default behaviors can be just used. You just grab the shared one. Right. Mm. And that's the recommended approach because then you're sharing that with the framework and everyone else that's mm. using maybe a pool of ints or bytes. Mm-hmm. But if you want to, you can define your own pool specifically. So if you have a common, I always need 700 bytes Right. In my common case, you can have a pool that allocates at that level. But for similar reasons, for the security reason, you could have a more secure pool that's only sure. used by one, mm. one f- sort of But if I've got millions of calls to a method that's going to use that same array over and over and over again, the idea that I would not keep kicking that in and out of the heap yeah. and just say, just give us a chunk of memory and we'll keep reusing it. And maybe you'll have three or four of them based yeah. on concurrency. And that's enough. Yeah. Exactly. It's hmm. efficient. It's sexy. And it thinks in terms of many multiple calls. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you sort of amortize the cost of arrays across the whole system that's yeah. Yeah, working yeah. with them. Yeah. Um, and it, as I say, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward code change to make yeah. that isn't going to sort of be a massive stumbling block for someone that's reading that code back. Um, it's a good win. 
Mm. And it, are these really features of new versions of C Sharp? Is that why we? Uh, yeah, newer, version, newer versions of .NET and some of them C-sharp. Okay. So, yeah, span of T relied in, in .NET Core on some runtime changes for right. its performance. So you, you kind of have to keep on the train. But, yeah, there's others. Uh, System.io Pipelines is another one I talk about, which mm -hmm. if you're working with, again, um, IO-type data, then one of the other things you can do to make that more performant is switch to the pipelines approach where they manage those temporary buffers and the transfer of data for you and trying to avoid memory copies that you traditionally get by handing off between streams. Um, mm. And so they manage that, that buffer array off the array pool itself. And they just, yeah, okay. you just ask it for a chunk of memory that you want to write into. And then on the reading end, you can just ask it for whatever you've got so far. I'll take that. And you can have a, a reader and a writer working concurrently over this stream of data. It, it seems to me that some of this stuff could just be built into the compiler with some optimization switches. Yeah, right? I, I imagine some of it could. I mean, I wouldn't, certainly a pool. I wouldn't think it would be necessarily that yeah. hard to sort of say, well, this is on a, this right. could just translate to ArrayPool.shared and, mm -hmm. and grab it. Yeah, as long as it was auto, always, always, always automatically cleared, like you don't want any yeah. Suspicious behavior, or you still have the balance problem. Yeah, you're still going to have to have something that figures out how to check that. Yeah. But, you know, a, a compiler could tell you whether or not you're, well, maybe not the compiler, but certainly something could tell you whether or not you're using the right values to return, you know, the number of bytes that you want to read or write, you know, that gets specified correctly. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. You know, sure. Um, any differences you find in, in performance? tuning and behaviors depending on the operating system you're running against like i guess it's linux if you're running containers i suspect you're running most of the stuff most linux. of our stuff is yeah linux containers right uh, but the interesting thing most of our dev work is done on a windows machine makes sense um and so linux still hasn't got a desktop that makes anybody happy yeah it's yeah it's not not an environment most people want to be in yeah some people mm -hmm. have gone the mac route to get sort of closer to that but mm -hmm. um yeah there are definitely differences um certainly i know for one of one of the examples in the framework was http client in dotnet core Perform differently, perform significantly worse. In fact, on Linux, in terms of number of requests that you could you could actually send out, and and that was down to OS level differences in the libraries. Uh, Linux was using libcurl, Windows was WinHttp under the hood, mm -hmm. and and so the team had sort of basically built an entire managed code layer to take away most of that uh, sort of OS reliance and just move down to sending raw HTTP bytes over sockets. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, testing across the platforms is important. And one of the nice things about benchmark.net is you, you can put a bunch of flags that the benchmarks run with against different platform versions, mm. different runtimes, even different GC modes if you want to. So it can kind of simulate those benchmarks and run it multiple times. So certainly mm. if you've got code that's de deploying on Linux, mm -hmm. it's worth making sure that your benchmarks are running there as well. What are you doing to build good load tests when you talk about these container solutions? Because you know, what's the client then? You got particular tools you like? Uh, I came across uh, one the other day, and I can't remember the name. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still trying to find something I'm sort of totally happy with, and something that we're we're in a process now where we we are trying to figure out how we do this nicely in a CI/CD flow, so we right. can just have something spin up x number of instance containers and hit it with the yeah. appropriate load that we've modeled based on profiling as as what we typically expect. Yeah, we ended up getting there um, back in the strange loop days, writing scripts that would take this huge stack of web tests, yeah. break them down into chunks. And I think at one point we were running like 15 parallel sets. So it was literally cutting it up wow. by 15, then setting up instances of the app and then running all the tests simultaneously just to keep the time down. Yeah. Right. For us, the, the magic number was 20 minutes. Mm. We were trying to get, every time you did a full build, 
you had everything, all the tests done by in 20 minutes. Right. Because that was enough time for somebody to go get a coffee, but not start on something new. Yeah. <laughs> Before you kick them back and That's go, right. hey, yeah. this didn't work. Because it was all about what was still in your head. Yeah, context right? switching mm-hmm. is a cost. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just don't think it's that trivial right now to be able to build out really big test suites and then have them decompose and run in parallel. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it, I think it's, you just got to sit down and write that code, right? Like yeah. the, the, that set of configuration as code scripts into your pipeline to be able to stand up all those things. Yeah. One of the areas we're focusing on on our microservices is the ones that are sort of queue processes because mm-hmm. there's usually some wins in there we can make and we don't have to worry. The The model there is a lot easier that you're just dealing with as much volume off a queue as possible. So as long as you know what your queue volumes typically are, you can pre-populate a queue with the appropriate sort of percentage of those messages, Right. spin up the appropriate proportion of instances and just see how long it takes to churn through the to queue. To drain the queue. Um, yeah. And, you know, you can have your output buckets that, you know, oh, we've put X number of error messages in there. Did we end up with that many on the poison queue? And, right. And these mm-hmm. kind of things. Um, and so that's, th- These that's, are almost kind of, I don't want to say they're unit tests, but in some ways they are unit tests. Like you are exercising one service against one queue. So yeah. you are sort of decomposing the app. Yeah, it's, it's a weird sort of integration test, but yeah, at a bit of a deep, deeper level sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I like that. You've got to make a queue big enough that it's enough time that you can care yeah. about how long it did. But, and you have this... I mean, almost like demographics of what normally goes through this queue. So many of these and so many of those. And yeah, we so know the peak load hits this this level. Sure. Um, because, yeah, I, I'm te- building that microservice that works on 18 million messages a day. I can't load test that in my dev environment very no. efficiently. Yeah. Um, and the other problem with that is most of our stuff's in the cloud. But in dev, if you're talking to a cloud queue, mm. you've got different latencies anyway. You need to run this all in the cloud to get right. your numbers sort of proportional to the to mm. the network environment in, that you're working in there. Is mm. the, and it's in some ways, I think this is where the cloud really shines. The fact that you can basically stand up a copy of your infrastructure mm-hmm. in the cloud and then run a test load against it and then tear it all back yeah, down. Pay, pay by sure. the minute and five minutes run doesn't cost you too much. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like the load. This is really renting computers, like yeah. literally for minutes. Yeah, I yeah. wonder what that turns into over a month of cost yeah. in exchange for, again, that short amount of duration of I write this piece of code and I get feedback on it right away that's meaningful. Yeah, we're definitely at the point now where we're trying to sort of build out like AWS CloudFormation scripts and CLI scripts that we can mm-hmm. just run in the cloud as part of you know the before production push. Right. This thing is still delivering the throughput. And again, that comes back to that. Do we know what the goal was with this service anyway? Yeah. Um, you know, how many requests or, me- or messages per second should it be yeah, dealing yeah. with, and have, See, we, I, I, have we kept that? I don't know if you get into this, but I certainly dealt with this back in the dot com boom days. Which is, it was easy to build benchmarks that tell me that V three of that service is this much faster than V two. Mm. What I couldn't answer reliably is, are we going to survive Saturday? Yeah. Right. That whole, can you do an all up test of the system? Estimating the amount of load will give you a guesstimate there. Are you going to make it? Yeah. And I could never simulate a load well enough to have real confidence in that because humans are weirder than load test tools. <laughs> yeah. They just do stuff. Yeah. Humans the web, the web load testing is tricky. It's tough. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I understand why you dismantle into individual services because then you really are benchmarking the service as opposed to trying to get this overall whole this is what it's going to be like kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to, to profile and then load test appropriately a monolith versus lots of little microservices yeah. is, is a very different challenge. Yeah. No easy answers there. And and certainly you can't ignore this stuff out of the scope of, you know, you want to stick in your code. Like that's easier. I'm going to optimize this method yep. as opposed to that much bigger bugbear of a, 
you know, how are our Indian users going to be? Mm. You know, and you got to fire up web page test or one of those other tools that will actually, you know, send you traffic from the other side of the world. Yeah. Look a little more like what your actual customer experiences are like. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, everybody talks about like there's no need for Q anymore. We can do this stuff ourselves. And I just don't think it's true. I think that's a job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For a group of people, a group of kind of dedicated, crazy people mm-hmm. that are OCD enough to really figure out a way to say, yeah, we think you're going to make it on Saturday because this, this, and this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've, we've modeled this through and yeah, we have a degree of confidence now yeah. that our services will hold. Yeah. That's really, it's really interesting. Fun work, I what, think. What are some of the more challenging, um, perf problems that you've encountered that were conventional? Uh, fixes don't apply? Um, that's a good question. Um, I ran into to one, and it wasn't so much that a conventional fix wasn't there, but there was a, a scenario where we had a service that was um, reading a file off of S3, deserializing the file, um, and um, processing some of the contents. And the person, it was a tab-separated file, about 10,000 lines, I think. And the person that had implemented that had, had used like a library that required that the input to this tab separation was strings. So the person had taken the entire file, read it in to a byte array, then did a UTF-8-2 string on that. Um, oh, so we had, the, you could see just looking at the code, you said, well, there's an allocation of like the entire file as bytes. Then there's right. an allocation of the file in, entirely as a string. But they couldn't see a way out of that because the library only gave them the API of string. Right. So, you know, I was able to optimize that away by moving towards a span of T approach because you can sure. you can use something like the the pipe reader to get that stream of data in. Once you can, it's in memory, you can read it however you that's want. It, yeah, you can just, yeah. basically with span, you slice the data and you look for the, the portions you care about. So you slice to the index of the first tab and you say, okay, well, we wanted the data before that. So now I'll take the slice before that. Mm. All of this is done without copying. It's just... Slicing is just changing your view of the the memory you're looking at. Right. The analogy I use is of photography. So if you're taking a nice wide-angle landscape of a, a scene, and then there's something in the center of that scene that you see that you want to kind of focus on, some, some, right. some feature that's really nice, you have two options, really. You could walk towards that thing, yeah. which could be a mile and take some time and effort, or mm-hmm. you can zoom if you have a lens that can zoom. Yeah. And slicing is a bit like zooming. It has a constant time and a constant cost to it because mm. it's it's a very lightweight operation as it's just changing your field of view over that memory mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that's where the performance gains can come from but one of the things i think that needs to happen is i think more and more of the libraries need to expose apis that accept that kind of thing if you've got a library that only accepts a string at some point you allocate a string right if you have a library that accepts a span of characters then you can start working with it that way so i think there's this will get easier i think as the libraries start to particularly these kind of parsing libraries start to expose apis that people that concern about performance can can take advantage of yeah stop making me copy this into a string to pass to you let me give you that's it yeah the developer really didn't see a way out of that to use that library Mm. um and it wasn't particularly easy to solve but you could you could look at that code and go oh this is this is surely allocating Mm -hmm. and you know scale that up to however many hundreds of files it's reading a day those allocations go through the roof in fact i did eventually profile that that piece of code and to handle uh, 75 files of 10,000 lines each with mm. seven gigs of allocations. Wow. Woot. And moving to span of T, I got that down to about 208. 
and megs. 200 and yeah 208 megs right and 200 and, that used to be a lot of memory yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> but 203 of that were the strings that we were actually parsing out to create objects to then move to the next step in the process so yeah. the overhead went down to five megabytes mm. right uh, five um yeah megabytes yeah it's about right and yeah everything else was actually the stuff you wanted yeah which kind of freaks you out at one point this was seven gigs to get 203 megabytes you cared about yeah and it all really short-lived. So, yes, the, the GC will take care of that. It's not going to live around too long, but yeah, that's it's pressure still that we're adding on to that, garbage that, that load um, right. that we can ex- remove, yeah. And those are big objects, too, which is kind of the tough stuff. Yeah, these things see. that end up in the large object heap have a, a, a whole different implication in terms mm. of the the fact that it's now a full GC that's got to occur to clean that, that memory up. Do you find sort of a competition between performance tune techniques like would you try more than one like i'm also now thinking could i have streamed that file in until i get to a header that i care about and that's the thing i actually yeah load? there's there's definitely no one right way with some of these things sure. i've tried multiple approaches and this is why the benchmark and the measure that part so of much. it is so important you, mm-hmm. you and typically we, what you'll do with the, the initial phase is you'll have a, like a bench multiple benchmarks all talking to or running different versions of that same code right with mm-hmm. your known input file and then you can just see mm-hmm. how those things compare on the same machine yeah. against one another and and sometimes the trade-off would be well we've shaved off memory but now our execution time's gone up sure mm-hmm. which one of these do we care yeah, what's about more important um yeah. other times you can reduce both what what about the impact on the code? I mean, is there a point where you go, this is higher performance, but nobody can work on this? Yes. Like, I had to write a big comment header that said, be afraid, be yeah. very afraid. Danger lie here, yes. yeah. Um, there's <laughs> there's definitely, <laughs> definitely an aspect of that. Um, yeah. I mean, I did some stuff around JSON parsing using the, the new system text JSON APIs, and there's a low-level parsing uh, library now that you can use mm-hmm. but it's it's scary world in there in terms of you're looking for individual tokens in that file and keeping track of where you are i i can't remember does span of t require unsafe mode no the nice thing about it is it is is fully memory safe um and yeah. to the point that you can even use stack allocated memory in a safe way so wow. you don't need the un, unsafe keyword that's there. good i mean anytime you see that i'm that's code i don't touch yeah, yeah. unsafe it says unsafe it's right unsafe. on it i shouldn't be writing this <laughs> do yeah. I even want to run this yeah it's designed in such a way that it sort of protects you from doing stupid slash the wrong things mm-hmm. um yeah. so span of t is protected from ever being on the heap a span of right. t type and that's because if you're pointing at stack memory then you don't want the thing that's looking at it potentially outliving the memory right. that you're you're exactly. staring at and that's where the unsafe part comes from so the, the type itself is designed in such a way that the compiler will stop you doing that and say, right. no, this cannot, cannot you know, be used in this way. It's been a while since we talked about stacks and heaps. Maybe we should just revisit that real quick. Right. Stacks, uh, the stack memory is basically allocated when you're in a method or you're in a if or in a, in a curly brace or whatever. And heap memory are class level, very module level variables, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, and they live outside the scope of your functions and methods. Yeah. So... Yeah, and th- therein lies the problem that it, something is unsafe if multiple if multiple stacks can reach that heap code at the same time. And, yeah, and, and if the memory that you were looking at suddenly changed and isn't what you right. you yeah. previously thought it to be, well, you're trying to get as little heap code as possible because cleaning up stack memory is easier. It's, yeah, it's cheap. The stack frame goes away and it's gone. Yeah, yeah. And you think about yeah. especially when we talk about service models and, and web stuff. There's mm. lots of stuff we allocate, build something, output, 
and die. Mm, yeah. And it's all freed up. So that's not, you know, you're just reaming through memory, creating stuff and destroying it immediately. Yep. It's not a big deal to clean that up. You just throw a couple of heap items in the midst of that and you impair yeah. the GC in a big way. Yeah, and one of the parses that I did, that object key building process, I was able to use stack memory. So I just used a character array on the stack mm -hmm. to use as my temporary working space to do that. So there's no heap allocation while I'm building this thing up right. until I've finished doing that. Um, the one danger point there is not to over-allocate on the stack because as I say to people, you'll, you'll then end up on stackoverflow.com trying to find out why you're getting a stack overflow exception and <laughs> the, the world becomes a bit strange at that stage. I just got a psychic <laughs> message from Don Symes saying, if you just use F-sharp, F -sharp, <laughs> all of this would go away. Oh my goodness. You know? I mean, that... Have you done that? Have you ever looked Functional. at like switching languages? Like, let's take this particular problem, this particular microservice, and recode it in functional. We had a hack day where a colleague of mine and I spent like the day trying to teach ourselves F sharp and to do some sort of DDD style domain modeling in it because we wow. sort of like we've heard that this is a good way to do that. Um, Honestly, I can't tell you if that code was good. I suspect if an actual F-sharp developer were to look at it, they'd, they'd say, no, you've done everything you could possibly do wrong. Hmm. Um, we, we got it working in a day, um, and it felt like we'd, we'd sort of achieved a quite a nice, concise domain model, but whether that would be performant code, and oh, that's the challenge. It. Yeah, we didn't benchmark that. Right. And, but it's a very different way of thinking about yeah. problems, too. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did a show, it's about a year ago, when we were in Sydney with... Daniel Chambers talking about yeah. Haskell and F sharp. And just again, that sort of microservices lends themselves to we could write this in other languages. Mm -hmm. It's got a clean interface. We, we're really focused on performance. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thought, but it's, it's just a question of how far you need to go. Like, I you're certainly the find that what I'm writing now is C sharp, but it's more functional style True C enough. sharp. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I can have a method that takes something and returns a value, and there's there's less like we're going to share this object that needs to be on the heap because we're going to come back to it later, yeah. you, you can start to more easily apply these techniques because then when you're optimizing that method, you're just trying to make sure that what it does in there isn't allocating too much mm. or isn't taking too long. Mm -hmm. Are you a fan of uh, static methods in classes rather than, you know, um, creating, I mean, creating singletons basically rather than uh, Not instance. as a static method, but I do find myself creating a lot of singletons in the DI container yeah. and by avoiding that sort of shared state problem right. and where you move more functional, a lot more of my services can be registered safely as a singleton because, yeah, mm. this one consumer can can do it. And, and that is a, a fairly simple code change that leads to performance optimization. Yeah. If you have a type that's transient and gets created hundreds of times on a web server sure. versus something that's registered once and has a very functional style about it, mm. you can get a win there without having to resort to span of T and more complex code scenarios. There you go. Are there any other? Is there any other low-hanging fruit that we haven't mentioned that you want to talk about? In I, the think last we, few minutes? I think we've we've caught most of yeah, yeah most of the good things. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing parsing, definitely start experimenting with a bit of spanity. I think and just yeah. see where that where that can get you. It, it appears quite complex on the surface, and Microsoft kind of caution people against using it. I feel still mm -hmm. maybe a bit too much. Mm. Um, it's one of those things that I think, yes, it shouldn't be used everywhere. Yeah. But if you are doing lots of string concatenation scenarios, even with string builders, and that's on a hot path, and it's in a kind of application that performance really matters in, then a span approach isn't particularly complex to, so to move to. So if you're doing string manipulation and you're using a string builder, that isn't enough? 
It's better than sort of raw concatenation. Um, Yeah, but the the string builder type itself is a class, Um, so that ends up on the heap. So if you have a hot path in a tight loop, I see. One of the things you want to do is try and either reuse that string builder. Um, There's a there's a an object pool that has been pretty well hidden in the Microsoft extensions namespace as well, and the Microsoft ASP.NET team use that a lot because they do string concatenation. Mm. And so they were they had a string builder pool essentially that they could just get these cleared mm. string builder instances from and use them again and again and again. So would you write your own kind of string builder around span of T? Um you would pretty much you 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 essentially are, but you're you're now sort of working at the character level yourself. So instead yeah. of letting it just take some strings off you, you are okay. pumping chunks of data into specific parts of that memory and, that and you're, you're looking pushing at. dangerously close to that. I'll write my orb garbage collector. Yeah, thanks very right. much. Like yeah. that kind of crazy. You think you can out optimize, right? Like the Adam Sitniks of the world. Yeah. Like those. those yeah, guys, the smart this people is what have they done, do. Done they, the work for us. Yeah, yeah, and they've done things a certain way for a reason because they've encountered certain problems. You're going to hit later. All right. Well, you know, uh, a very wise person summed it up with one word: ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, Steve, thanks a lot for spending the time with us today. We learned a lot. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Excellent. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time.